The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Clean Coders and its employees. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Clean Coders podcast. I'm your host, Charles Maxwood, and I am here with Eric Critchlow. Eric, welcome back. Thank you, sir. Always good to be back. Always a good time. I remember working my tail off to become a senior developer. I read every book I could get my hands on. I went to any conference I could and watched the videos about the things that I thought I needed to learn. And eventually, I got that senior developer job. And then I realized that the rest of my career looked just like where I was now. I mean, where was the rush I got from learning? What was I supposed to do to keep growing? And then I found it. I got the chance to mentor some developers. I started a podcast and helped many more developers. I did screencasts and helped even more developers. I kind of became a dev hero. And now I want to help you become one too. And if you're looking forward to something more than doing the same thing at a different job three years from now, then join the Dev Heroes Accelerator. I'll walk you through the process of building and growing a following and finding people that you can uniquely help as you build the next stage of your career. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. Oh, yeah. And uh, yeah, we were talking before the call. You said you're uh, speaking at a virtual event and that we're going to talk about some of the same topics you're speaking about there. So do you want to just kind of kick things off and explain what's going on and yeah, what what we're going to be uh, discussing here? <laughs> so my understanding I got reached out to by the, the, you know, the president of Clean Coders informing me that they've been working with Spotify and Spotify reached out to them and said, hey, we would like this guy who did your iOS development series to speak at our internal developer conference in April on the subject of quality metrics. And then they threw out a few possible topics that we could talk about or that I could talk about, you know, like uh, the, the unique things to, to mobile development when it comes mm. to quality metrics and the different code coverage levels that you should be aiming for with mobile versus with backend stuff and, you know, one or two others. And I got, I got it and I'm like, oh, hmm. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, it's it's easy. Like I come in here and, and, and you and I talk and we talk about stuff that I'm familiar with that I talk about all the time. That's all right. in my head. And it's, and it's easy. I could stand on a stage for an hour and talk about the stuff we talk about or sit here with you for an hour and talk about stuff. Yeah. But and one of the things I bring up during the talk. And, and so what I ended up doing was was having a conversation with the guy from Spotify. I'm like, you know, look, let me be honest with you. I, I'd love to speak there. But your topic, I could not give you a 30 to 45 minute you know, talk on this topic. And here's why. I've been in mobile now since 2008. I've been all over the place. Mm-hmm. If I didn't directly work at these places, I worked for a consultancy that did consulting work for them. But I've, you know, American Express, General Motors, Microsoft, Xerox, and then you know, smaller, oh, HP, smaller company. Mm-hmm. Skymall and some companies people have never heard of and startups and through all these different places, only two that I've ever been at even talked about quality metrics, I mean, even even did code cover, or even did unit testing, much less had stated goals for code coverage. So I just don't think it's a big thing in the world of mobile. So uh-huh. it would be a real short talk if we keep it to this. So, hey, how about what I could do for you, though, is is if you're open to it, I could if we expand the topic to quality with regards to mobile software development in general, mm-hmm. then there's other topics I can hit that, you know, that there's things that are unique to mobile that you should keep an eye on. And there's other stuff to be aware of and pay attention of in the software developers toolkit. There's certain stuff we do that improves code quality. And I can give you that talk. And it's part of that talk. I can get you the, what I can, can dig up on quality right. metrics. And so they, they went away and said, yeah, let, 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 we'll talk about it and get back to you. And a part of me was like, man, this is, I, this, this is a tough ask. I'm not even sure if I want them to come back and say, sure. I might. <laughs> I might be, you know what? Yeah, we thought about it. And yeah. uh, it's all right. 
but they came back and said, yeah, we're, we're into it. So <laughs> let's move forward with it. Like, oh, okay, cool. And I guess a lot of these presentations, the, the conference is next week and a lot of the presentations are being pre-recorded. So then much like with the clean quarter series, I had to spend, you know, hours scripting a talk, recording the live segments where I'm speaking on camera, recording the screencast part of it, putting together a slide deck and then recording the pieces where I'm talking over the slide deck. And then uh-huh. up in the iMovie and having 60 different <laughs> yeah, elements that to stitch together ever so perfectly to you know, output this 47 minute long talk that's going to be given on Tuesday. Awesome. Well, I'm excited to see what you came up with. So I think we probably want to start because I think a lot of the listeners are web developers or, or mobile developers and may not get, yeah, what you pay attention to differently between one and the other. Yeah. And and that that's one of the points I made was during this talk is when I was a General Motors. So when I started General Motors, we were a startup within a major organization. It was, okay. we have this project that that we want to kick off. It was you know, ride sharing. And you know, we're a car company. Mm-hmm. Everything we do is geared towards selling cars. Okay, right. this is going to be a project that's all about not having to buy a car. This is about the the new younger generation who live in big cities and you know live downtown and and use public transportation or walk or bike or don't really need a vehicle, but occasionally they might. And so we're targeting these folks. Mm-hmm. Come in and work on this. So when we come in and do this. We're just go 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 go. the The guy who ran it made the point: Hey, we're gonna we're gonna make mistakes. We're gonna blow stuff up. We're gonna have crashes in production, and we're just gonna fix them and put hot fixes out there and just keep running, running, running. And that's how we're gonna operate. And we did right. for the first couple of years. And so neither the back end folks nor the mobile side paid any attention whatsoever to testing, unit testing, or mm-hmm. UI testing, or code coverage, or any of that stuff. A couple of years in, once we actually were out in the world and had 100,000 users, and now the company's looking at us no longer as a startup, but as a business unit, then things changed. And it was, okay, now we right. have these metrics. And so management started saying, now, yeah, we want X percent code coverage and, you know, and all this. And I said, after being there five and a half years, by the time I left, the back end folks had, I think, close to 100% code coverage. Wow. They had rules in place where no commits were made unless the test passed. No new uh-huh. functions were written that didn't have tests written for them. And it made sense for the back end. And, and, and similarly, I will say when I worked on the, I was on the team for a consultancy that did the original iOS and Android Microsoft Azure SDKs. <clears throat> we had, I would say, 100% code coverage, but something close to mm-hmm. that. And again, that makes sense. It's an SDK. It is data in, data out. Mostly predictable data in, data Uh out. That's what the back end, you know, that's what back end code generally is. And when you've got that, it makes all the sense in the world to, you generally know the the majority values you're going to get in are in this range. And you can think of some outlier cases and maybe you throw in a couple of, yeah, if something really goofy happens, and you can put right. in for all those. Same with an SDK. But when it comes to a mobile application, and I brought up one of Apple's settings, general settings screens, mm-hmm. said, you know, you've got a, a screen with 10 controls on it. And these controls all do different things. Some of them are time-related. Maybe you know, uh, something has happened on the phone or something has to reach out to a back end and come back. And, and so you've got all these different controls to do different things with different time constraints. What happens if a person hits all 10 in under a second? Are you <laughs> going to script tests for every possible combination of what can be done with these 10 controls? No, you're not. It would be a waste of time. It doesn't make sense. Right. So if, if you're thinking I want 100% code coverage in my mobile code, including UI testing no you're you're on the wrong track entirely ui testing you know and i and i mean i go back to to before there were there were smartphones when i was doing desktop software for the mac and like i would go to macworld every year mm-hmm. and some company would be showing their hey we got 
UI testing now. It was like the holy grail. Like nobody could get it done and get it done right. And the platform holders weren't doing it. So that was like a big deal when these companies say, told you they had something where you can deploy this and it will test your the UI of your app start to finish. Well, now with the mobile devices, you know, Google and Apple both support that stuff built into their development mm-hmm. environments. But don't think that that means we achieved the holy grail. We didn't. What is <laughs> mobile is happy path. We, we changed the view controller. We changed some business logic. Can the user perform function X that takes seven steps uh, across four screens? And mm-hmm. did we break it? <laughs> right. Let's run our, our UI test to make sure they can still perform that function. Perfect for that. Don't think that your UI tests are going to cover all the crazy things that a user can do with the phone in their hand, tapping on your screen. It's just not. Right. That's interesting because, I mean, web development has kind of picked up some of the UI testing, right? But yeah, most of the testing is unit testing and was focused on kind of the underlying technology. But yeah, phones are designed to connect to the world. And so what you're saying is, is that you test your interfaces because you can't always rely on how the world connects to your phone. And then you make sure the experience lines up with what people expect. And that's a human thing. I, other right. than just making a sandy check to make sure that you didn't break workflows, seeing how things happen when people do crazy stuff like users do, that still requires <laughs> a human being, and hopefully a human being that, that works in your testing room and not a customer, to, um, right. to go through and try to do crazy stuff to break things. hmm yeah, so what's a good reason for separating, you know, logic and 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 so bringing right. it back to the clean coders thing? I'm like, okay, you, a lot of back end folks, even web developers, you know, look at the solid principles. Well, hey, that's considered mm-hmm. best practices in, in a lot of places. Number one on that list, single responsibility principle. Yep. And if you've done IS development and you know that Apple pushes model view controller as the primary design pattern. Mm-hmm. Any of us who've worked on on apps, especially that we've inherited from other people, since of course we don't do this ourselves, of course not. <laughs> have you know? We know MVC stands for Massive View Controller because you have thousands uh-huh. of code. Yes, the single responsibility of this view controller subclass is to manage the view controller. Yep. Yeah, that's not quite what single responsibility principle means. But if you if you're on that mindset, you can extract the UI parts out and keep them in the view controller, but everything that's processing, that's data processing related, everything that decides what to do with stuff that comes in from the back end, all the business logic, that stuff can be extracted out mm-hmm. into other modules and you can unit test that stuff. Yeah. Right. Now you can kick those numbers up, but you're still gonna there's still gonna be some UI stuff to it. Yep. You don't think, you know, don't don't think that you're gonna have to meet the same numbers or it's reasonable to even think about meeting the same numbers as the backend team. Yep. Yep, absolutely. So what, I mean, we're talking about like high level, like you test these things and like the UI and the UI is more important, say, than uh, the logic and what you're testing or at least bigger component of what you're testing in iOS or Android. So so how does that change your approach? And it all depends on, on your personal, not necessarily your personal, but the your personal commitment to it and the right. company's commitment to it. And I, I differentiate those because in one of the points I make in this presentation I'm doing is if if your question is what percentage of code coverage should we be aiming for? Mm-hmm. Unless your number is 100%, I don't think it's a good question. And there's reasons for that. One of the reasons and something we did back at GM when management you know, gave those mandates down Let's let's run, you know, let's build, let's run our test suite. Let's let Xcode produce that uh, report that says what our code coverage mm-hmm. is. Hey, our code coverage is up at 60%. That's awesome. Okay, what's the truth behind? <laughs> the truth behind that is we checked the box that said include subprojects. Subprojects include all the third-party libraries that we have in there, oh. including the very big networking library that we use that has 100% code coverage. So right. that's factored in. That bumps our numbers up. We look great. We're doing a great job. That's not our code. That's a <laughs> industry standard, well-known, third-party, open-source library that everyone uses and trusts because we all know that it works. So including their numbers with ours is really just 
a dishonest tricks for, for us mm-hmm. to tell management, you know, we're getting closer. And yeah, you can, as a team rule, you can say, we're not going to do that. But the reality is nobody told management this. You know, our Android right. team did it. Our iOS team did it. And we did it so that we can go to them and say we've made progress. Because when when people are putting restrictions and deadlines and mandates on you, well, you're going to do whatever it takes to make sure that that you that they don't have a reason to come back to you until you fail. Right. That, you know, so it, it's a your approach needs to be everybody. Everybody should understand why we're doing this. There's a reason. Right. And then let's do it sensibly. And one of the, the points I make is if 10% of your code is only being run a fraction of the time and it's not mission critical code, how important is it to test that 10%? You know, understand where the, the important code is, understand right. where the code is that can that can give bad results that you know mess up someone's calculations that that result in your software being untrustworthy. You know, right. understand where the business rules are. Mm-hmm. Understand the things that are most important to test. Prioritize that stuff. Right. And, and as long as you're doing that, you're getting more bang for your buck than just randomly picking the easiest stuff to test. Right. So, so how do you know what that is? My suggestion on that was, you know, and I had different sections in this talk I go through. And one of the things that I said was, and, and I kind of had this viewpoint going back to the days of GM, the GM periodically management would say, hey, we want you guys to integrate um, the Facebook SDK for their analytics. And hey, we want you guys to integrate Firebase analytics. Oh, hey, we want you. And there were literally mm-hmm. four different analytics packages that different parts of the business wanted for different reasons. And so the apps had these analytics, you know, again, four different sets of analytics built in and developers like this is ridiculous. And we're having to go through and, you know, add events for all these different ones and, and add, add code that, that supports these analytics tools. So right. it's for developers to, to view analytics as stuff, the business people impose on us. <laughs> but I'm like, don't do that. Because I know a lot of us <laughs> on our indie projects, a lot of us will integrate analytics so that we, right, you know, because we are the business and we're development, and there's certain things we want to know about how people are using our stuff, and so we'll do it there. But when it comes to work, we just think it's it's the business folks, you know, putting this stuff down on us. Like, no, analytics is a great way for you to be able to determine, hey, this feature, how much is it being used? And right. This feature relies on these business rules and relies on this processing code wow that feature only gets used by two percent of our users i had no idea i thought this was going to be more popular you have an idea yeah. well, i don't need to focus as much testing on that mm-hmm. this here is used by 78 percent of our users and it relies on that set of back-end logic and that set of processing logic let's focus on that so you know so one of the things that i throw out there is use analytics to figure out what's getting hammered a lot um and the other thing i talk about now, I mentioned the very first time I ever heard this was well over 10 years ago at an Apple Worldwide Developer Conference, but it was related to optimization. And it was a, it was a whole session that I, that I attended on it. And the guy drove home the point, don't optimize prematurely. Now, I've heard this probably a dozen times since then, but that's the first time I ever heard it. And his point was, you know, don't look at your code and make assumptions of, yeah, I think that's probably a bottleneck. So let me optimize this. No. <laughs> Profile your code. Use right. instruments, well, it wasn't instruments at the time, but use instruments, determine where your real bottlenecks are and focus right. there. And so I'm saying that you do the same thing. Profile your code, find out wh- which parts of it are being hit most frequently. And, and you can you can get, I'm fairly certain instruments will show you, in re- at least in relation to time, where... Mm-hmm most of the time is being spent in your code processing. Right. All right. That's someplace I need to make sure that I'm focusing heavily on testing. Right. So what you're doing is you're going through and you're evaluating where the real value is for your users, for your business, and and then focusing your attention there. So it may be, I, one that you did, I didn't hear you mention, but is is kind of implied there too, is like the our can't lose customers, right? The customers that we just, we rely on to keep coming back. You know, maybe... 
it's only used 10% of the time, but it's those users, right? It's the 20% yeah. of our revenue users, right? Is another metric. But yeah, who's using it? How often is it used? How much of an impact is it, right? Exactly. I really like that because yeah, then I can go, okay, this doesn't really matter, right? In fact, you may even wind up taking code out. I love deleting code. But you may <laughs> wind up you know, taking that code out and going, yeah, I, I don't need to worry so much about this aspect of the thing. And especially given that most of us, and I, yeah, I, I hesitate sometimes when I say this, based on my personal experience and the conversations I have, most of us don't, most of us aren't given time to unit test properly. Now, if, you, if you're the backend team, like when I was a GM, okay, yeah, you and, and everyone understands and we've discussed it's a mandate of how important this is, mm-hmm. they get more time for it. But on the mobile side, you, nobody really considers that when we're story pointing things and, and when we're talking right. time frames of features. Uh, developers don't generally include it when, when we think of, okay, how much time is it going to take to do this feature? We're not thinking, all right, if I do this in a TDD manner and I write tests for absolutely everything I do before I do it, that's going to increase things by 40. Let me boost it by 40. Right. We don't think that. We just think writing the code should take about this amount of time if things go normally and there are no major roadblocks. And that's uh-huh. what we threw out there. And it's been what we're held to. So you know, you know, you're not really going to have time to, to write testing code for everything in most companies in most situations so understanding that it makes sense to get the most bang for your buck and whatever you need to do to find out where it makes the most sense to apply that those unit tests to will you do that makes sense so once you've kind of figured that out i mean do you have a specific approach to what the most effective ways to start putting those in are i mean I guess unit testing is pretty straightforward, but... Not necessarily. Uh, okay. <laughs> so the the godfather of clean coders, you know, the, uh, Uncle Bob, he's got another book coming out here, uh, Clean Architect, yep. which which I got a advanced copy of to you know preview and, and give feedback on. And I've honestly... Oh, now I'm offended. I interviewed him about that book and he didn't give me a copy. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but yeah, I've known, I've known about solid for a long time. I've known about TDD for a long time, but I didn't necessarily under fully understand all of it in, in practice. And that's one of the things that this book is, is about. Yeah, this is how mm-hmm. we talk about these concepts. This is what it really is in practice. Okay. TDD. And, you know, he goes through a session of writing some code using TDD and the very first thing you'll write one line of code in the test and this is going to fail. Now you write a code, line of production yep. code. Okay. That, you know, that passes. I have, I still have a hard time wrapping my mind around that. That's a bit much to me. <laughs> I understand it. For me, it's a bit much. And I admit freely that for the longest time, I wasn't even a fan of, of unit testing uh, and, and certainly not test driven development. You and I have talked before about Will Shipley. The guy, one of the founders of Omni Group, who the company that made OmniWeb, which was big uh-huh. on back in the early days. And years ago, he wrote a blog post titled Unit Testing is the Suck. And when <laughs> I read that, I was like, Yes, exactly. I'm with you. And that was like my mantra for years. And I would, anytime the subject came up, I would send someone, you know, the link to that blog. Right. Post. <laughs> read this. So it, it took a while for me to get there. And what prompted me i think to get there was a few years back one of the things and and again i freely admit that i am not necessarily a best practices guy i understand Mm -hmm. them i'm not gonna generally argue about it but i don't always follow them one place i don't follow them you know a lot of high-end ios and android developers counsel other mobile developers never write your own networking stack there's Right, true, well-regarded third-party stacks out there on the Android side. There's OS issues that that cause failures that you don't want to deal with. But the the tried and true third-party solutions that, that we all know and use, they get around those things. So you know, all always use those. I don't believe in that because when, when I look at both platforms, networking code is not that difficult to write. Right. And so when I when I first came to the project to GM, I'm like, I don't want to use one of those third-party networking libraries. I don't do mm-hmm. myself. I got sidetracked on having to work on Bluetooth code. So then I got taken away from app side code and they ended up 
bringing in you know code that I wouldn't have wanted third party stuff. Right. But at some point, I decided like you know what? No, I want to write my own network working stack because one because I think that it's it's overkill for most of these third party libraries. Two, you have to adapt to how that person envisioned a library working whereas i wanted to develop my own api with my own response mechanism if it's callbacks mm-hmm. or whatever notifications i want to do it my way right so let me develop and you know what around that same time i just for some reason i started to sour on and i may we may have talked about this before but i started to sour on the ui stuff and i think it was because you, know, you had designers throwing on hey this would be really yeah. cool and I'm like <laughs> Really can't happens on the web too, and then you get stuck in CSS, and you're like, "Can't we just use some stock controls, or maybe tweak them a bit?" To do, do you really yeah here? So I kind of soured on the UI. So I'm like, "Let other people do do with that stuff." I'm I'm starting to dig app infrastructure. You know how mm-hmm. how components talk to each other, how they notify each other of things, how how we process stuff from the back end and make sure that it's solid. Because we used to crash a lot when our back-end folks who didn't have unit tests at the time would change something, you know, a price from a number to a string or vice versa. And that would make mm-hmm. that blow up. And so all these, like, I, I want to do my own infrastructure library for doing network communications, for object inflation, you know, from the data that comes back from the back-end, for data persistence, and for a couple of right. other. And so I did that. And I'm like, well, now I'm going to, I, I'm fortunate because I'm the one on the team who knows Android and iOS. I get certain projects thrown my way because mm-hmm. they're needed on both and no one else can do both. But so, hey, we got one right. guy who can do both. You do it. I'm going to start using my library on these projects. Hmm. If my library sucks and, and fails a lot and is unreliable, that's going to be my reputation, if not my job. Right. I make sure that this library is, is pardon the pun, solid. Can't think of any better way than writing tests for it. So that is what got me to start being into testing. And so, yeah, right. I wrote unit tests for every method with, you know, failing. I did the best job I knew how in writing tests for this infrastructure library I wrote. And 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 that got me to be like, you know what? This is kind of fun, actually. I, I'm, This is kind of cool. I like it. I, I now have a lot more confidence that I didn't do something stupid. <laughs> that, <laughs> that these features that I'm writing that I'm not actually using now, but might be used in the future, which is another thing is the best practice tells you, you know, don't don't try to envision what you're going to need three years from now and write it. Write what yep. you need. Now. I'm like, well, no, this is a this is a library meant to power my ass for the next ten years. So yeah, I'm going to predict some things I might need and put them in there. But since they're not actually being used by any app right now, I'm not going to know if they really work. Oh, but the tests will tell me they do. So yep. that, that's when I kind of converted to it. And that's you know, how I look at it now. Approaching it is what are you most concerned about not working and everybody looking at you? <laughs> hey, you wrote this. What's the problem? So yep. for self-preservation and out of a sense of pride, certain the stuff that you write that you know is just it's an api it's an sdk it's it's code mm-hmm. that doesn't do ui go ahead and throw some unit tests in there on it. yep absolutely hey folks if you love this podcast and would like to support the show or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages then you're in luck we're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after christmas 2020 without the ads signing up will help us pay for editing and production and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. So I'm curious now, now that we've kind of talked through a lot of these ideas, and I don't know if we've missed any ideas that you gave in your talk, but what I'm curious about is, so what's the overall workflow, right? I mean, you know, front to back, top to bottom. If if you're going to go out and write an app today and you want to make sure that the code is quality and that it works as expected and things like that, like what are the steps that you would go through as you're writing the app in order to make sure that this is all happening, you know, because we've talked about these pieces, but I'd like to kind of see the big picture, if that makes sense. Right. And, and you know, I had it broken out into a few pieces. And of course, now that you and I are sitting here, I'm, I'm like, remember, remember, remember. Yep. <laughs> but the, I, I do certainly remember that the first one was architecture, decide on it. And because I had made, you know, Apple promotes MVC. It's not the only way to go. There are people on iOS who are who who are devotees of solid and so who use 
Vapor? Is that the name? Viper? Vapor? Vapor is one thing. Viper is another. I forget which is which. Um, I can't remember either. There's a, you know, there's there's a whole framework that was created for mm-hmm. iOS developers who who want to, to apply the solid principles. And it was also brought over to Android. Some people are using MVVM. Some people are going function. My old friends over at American Express on the iOS team, they switched to functional programming in iOS. And they're the only ones I've heard of who do that. But whatever... Whatever the architecture is, decide what makes the most sense for you mm-hmm. and start there. Okay. If you believe in solid. Okay. As now as you're developing your classes, developing in your view controller subclasses, right. developing in mind of I want to separate business logic and I want to separate processing code from UI code. You know, just mm-hmm. go into it knowing this is my roadmap. This is how I want to do things. This is the the design style and architecture I want to go with and implement that. And even on when you come into an existing project, or even if it's your project, but you've gotten a few years down the line, and maybe you started in in Android in the beginning, and I I, I started early on, but it's been so long I don't really remember. I don't remember Google pushing MVVM back in the early days. I feel like that came on later. But mm-hmm. at General Motors, we started with more of an MVC architecture, and years down the line, thousands of, of lines of code and a few hundred files. We switched to MVVM, and it wasn't a Herculean effort to do so. So it is possible right. to architect stuff you've done and move to a new architecture if that makes the most sense for you. So regardless, new program, you know, new code base or old code base, decide what architecture makes the most sense now and do that. Mm-hmm. Test the things that make sense to test. Right. You know, use, the, use your analytics and things to figure out where where the majority of time is being spent in your, in your process and to get the most bang for your testing buck. And then an, another point I hit on was, you know, pay attention to your, your crashes. There's a, you know, there's crash analytics and, and, mm-hmm. and all kinds of third party, party frameworks out there, but Apple and Google right. also give you a, a pretty good interface for getting stack traces of where your app is crashing. Well, don't ignore it. Like, Oh, Hey, we're having crashes. You know, well, no, everybody dive in and, bring up those stack traces and, and, and figure out where stuff is and, and go attack that. Cause that's, that's what makes users think your app sucks. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Regardless of what the reason is. So it's always important to be on top of those. Understand the places where mobile applications tend to fail most frequently. I understand the most often this, you know, found bugs and I said, there's, there's at least a couple of them that I know of off the top of my head. And again, I go back to General Motors since that's where I spent the majority of my, you know, more time as a mobile developer than anyplace else. And that's where we really did the most work. In the early days, and I mentioned this earlier, our Android app used to crash a lot because the backend guys who did not have unit testing would change something like a, a price went from a string to a to a double or or vice versa. And mm-hmm. processing code on the the app side was assuming something that turned out not to be true and boom, it blew up. And we used to blow up in production right. regularity. Um, and, and I used to blame that on, we were using a library <laughs> called Retrofit, which is kind of their standard networking stack net, you know, networking stack uh third-party library to use and retrofit sucks no it wasn't retrofit it wasn't even the library we were using inflate objects it was it was the code we were writing in how we utilized it and in the assumption right. that we made and we weren't doing the right thing so it makes sense to understand that that's a place where problems happen and make sure that the code you write there is rock solid and probably tested to make sure that it will adapt to unexpected responses. Right. The next thing I focus on is I, I make the point that I've interviewed a lot of prospective mobile developers, and, and there's a question that I always ask every single one. And I don't know if, if I'm wording the question wrong, if I'm not specific enough. I, I don't know, but I almost never get the answer I'm looking for. And I even try to kind of lead them to it, and I still don't generally get the answer. And I know some <laughs> are completely capable, so I don't know. But I, I've, I've still not abandoned I try to tweak it, but I haven't abandoned the question. I just know that I just don't generally get the right answer. And, and the question will go something like, you have, you've got this screen, there's a UI element on the screen, the UI element changes based on some information that is returned from a call to the back end. But for some reason, the element isn't updated. What's the first thing you look for? The answer mm-hmm. I'm looking for is all UI 
code has to be run on the main thread. Android, right. iOS, both the same. And if you're in a lot of times when you're processing code from the back end, you're getting that code on some callback that's not running on the main thread. So the uh. first thing is make sure it's not running on the main thread. I make this mistake with probably more regularity than I should. And I see other people on the team that I work on make this mistake. It's it's a common mistake. So that's something to be focused on. And in one mm-hmm. code base I got exposed to once, they, you know, they did their own. I think they were still using the third party library, but they had an intermediate module that that managed this and it always delivered back in code results to other modules on the main thread. Therefore, if you're writing a view controller subclass that read, that you know updates its UI based on a response from the 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 back end, you don't even have to think about it because you know that the that the the infrastructure that this app has in place always mm-hmm. delivers those responses on the main thread. Boom, done. Never have to think about it again. Do that or do something like that. Be aware of that and figure out how you're going to do something other than rely on people to remember when they have to run stuff on the main thread. You know, I made the point, you know the people you work with. Do you mm-hmm. really trust them to always remember when they're supposed to do, do this? <laughs> you know you. Do you always trust yep. you to remember? I know I don't. Yep. I know I made that mistake a number of times. Yep. Oh yeah, this needs to be, I need to, okay, run on the main thread. And then I think the last thing I go into, and and I talk about how a few years ago, I really got into the whole infrastructure thing and pushing data around all that. That was one of the things I really got focused on. Another thing that I strangely got got really into was logging. Mm-hmm. And I, I I know, and I know based on people I work with and seeing what they do, a lot of developers treat logging as an afterthought. Maybe not back-end folks, but like front-end mobile developers, there's some debugging statements they might throw in. They might log some responses from some calls, but they don't really take logging overly seriously and they don't really utilize it for as right. much as it could be used for. And I didn't either. I wasn't any different until I worked on this app at GM. And I mentioned it was a, a car sharing app. And the whole thing of the app was you, you we rent spots out in parking structures and parking lots in big cities. And we have a fleet of cars all over the city, two here, three there, maybe four there, you know, all in these spots all over the city. Right. You need a car. You use the app to see which car is going to be available when you need it. You make a reservation on it. When mm-hmm. the time comes, the back end sends you something we call a digital key, which then you approach the car and it's all Bluetooth, you know, right. the whole Bluetooth thing. We, we tell you which Bluetooth ID you're looking for, your phone scans for it. When it finds it, it connects, they negotiate. Okay, this is the car I'm looking for. Okay, this is the person with the reservation on me right now. Enable, enable this screen that now has a lock button, an unlock button, a horn button, you know, and a, and a, and a remote start button. And get in driveway. And when you when you yep. away from the car, once you get far enough away, the Bluetooth connection drops. And when that happens, we start scanning for it again. And so when you come back out of the store, wherever you're at, it finds again. It connects. By the time you walk up to the door, it just automatically unlocks. You're in, and it's just this beautifully seamless experience where you don't even have to think about the fact that it's your phone that is your interface between you and this car that you're in. It is. It is. It is Nirvana. And anybody who's worked with Bluetooth knows it don't work that way. <laughs> Stuff goes wrong. And I yeah, I would try to tell people in on the business side of work, I'm like, look, I've got a you know, I've got my my Mazda out here. It won't always connect to my phone. And my phone is just running Apple software. This is not custom software. This is right. operating system software. My car won't even always find my phone. Sometimes I have to turn the car and start back up again for it to find my phone. I've got Bose headphones. Not cheap. Mm-hmm. Good quality headphones. The phone won't always find the Bose. And sometimes I have to turn it back on. Off. Bluetooth just doesn't always work seamlessly. It does not work that way. So... We would have lots of people out there in the world, customers who this never works. It won't connect. To, I can't. I can't establish an initial connection to even get in the car. And unfortunately for us, when we very first launched this, we launched it in Ann Arbor, Michigan, around the University of Michigan, because you know we're targeting a, a generation of people who are mostly like younger. So we launched it around the University of Michigan, and one of our very first customers was a kid 
I say a kid, you know, a young adult <laughs> who had a date and he used our service to rent a car to go on his date. Oh, and no. it didn't work. He was never able to get into his car and he missed his date. And I'm like, you know, we could have, that could have been his future wife. And, and because of us and, and what we did, we ruined this kid's whole future. Um, <laughs> but because of stuff like that, um, and I was the one doing the, the, I did both iOS and Android Bluetooth code originally, but I, after doing the initial implementation, I handed the iOS code off to other folks and I did the Android stuff. I learned I can't be there with these people when these things are happening. I can't explain what's going on out in the parking lot. This is working great. We've got our test vehicle and I walk it to it and I walk away from it. I walk uh-huh. back to it and I'll walk around, you know, a hundred feet away in like a circle around it to where I'm coming in and out of Bluetooth range. And yeah, maybe occasionally it gets a little caught up, but within a minute it figures it out and it connects. So what's the problem? Well, the only way I'm going to find out information is by logging the hell out of everything that happens in those Bluetooth yeah. interactions and everything the system is telling me about I discovered this device. I'm trying to connect to this device. Oh, there's an error connecting. You know, logging is the was my lifeline in understanding what was going on most of the time when there was a problem. From that, I developed this love of logging. Like, oh, what more can I do with it? And so we had a another application at, at, at GM that I worked on, which was a shuttle reservation service. So GM being GM, they've got some installations, especially up in Michigan. One of the main ones is one mile by one mile. Mm-hmm. There's buildings that are hundreds, oh, of wow. hundreds of yards away from each other. And so people have meetings to go. And, you know, they don't always want to go out to the, to the parking lot, jump in their car, drive to another building just for a meeting. Right. So there's a shuttle system that, that takes people around. They they and, and they have developed an app that allowed them to reserve these shuttles. Hey, I need one at such and such time. Okay, we've got this many seats available and, and you know, that whole thing. And... I ended up inheriting that project. It was actually the first Swift project I inherited. I didn't even know Swift yet. And I'm like, uh, sure. <laughs> I remember that transition. Uh-huh. And, and on that, I took logging to what I thought was like the next level. And that was, I put you know tokens in each log to, to say mm-hmm. this log entry, okay, this person changed their start time. Okay, this person changed the, their destination building on, mm-hmm. in this entry. They booked this shuttle. They they got on this shuttle. The, the you know we got right. location updates to say and, and like every single logging statement that had to do with their reservation and their trip had a tag attached to it that was coded. And what I was able to do then with that was I wrote a, a desktop app that took those codings and turned mm-hmm. them into what I call the story. So if you've got a a first line support person who doesn't know what log statements are and doesn't understand how, how they work, well, hey, just have them send you the log. Or better yet, let's embed something in the app where we can send a silent push notification to this to this app to say, hey, we need those logs, send it back home. Then the user never even has to know. So you, however you get it, you get a log, you plug it into this program, hit create story, and now you've got a human readable user booked shuttle at such and such time from point A to point B. I can, that makes sense to me. I can, that's human real. Mm-hmm. Anybody can see that and understand what's yep. going on. And they may have booked over the last week, 17 different trips. You've got 17 different entries. Okay, there's a there's a disclosure triangle. Expand that. User originally picked this start time. Then they changed at that time. They were given these three options of the shuttles to take. They picked that one. Shuttle showed up at sunset, you know, and, and you, you can break it down to another level of human readable stuff but if you keep drilling down eventually you get down to the raw logging statements that got Mm -hmm. you there so if if this problem ticket works its way up from first level second level to development now the developer can say yeah i don't need all that just give me the the raw statements i can figure out what, what went on from there and i thought that was the coolest thing that i had ever done possibly (laughs) and i'm like showing you people on the business side hey i i can give you this that will completely simplify. We, you know, we have always had people having problems. That's just the reality of the situation. We've got support staff that frequently reach out to Deb because they, oh, we don't know what went on here. Right. So it's easier to send you the logs and send them to us and we'll look at them. I can streamline this whole thing for you and I can give those support staff something that will help them 
explain to the user what happened and mm-hmm. what the cost less frequently. And there were a couple of people in, in the business that are like, hey, yeah, that make that's kind of cool, but not the right people, not enough of them. And then on the, the dev side, you know, I show this to the, the other developers, like, this is the coolest thing I've ever done. And they're like, yeah, that's all right. <laughs> you people don't get it because you don't respect logging. Logging will give you everything in the world you ever need to know about what is going wrong in this app that you're spending hours trying to debug. So that was yep. my final point to them was developers don't respect logging enough. Start respecting logging and hey, here's some there's some really cool stuff you can do with it. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because you're talking about logging and you brought up, you know, on the back end, which is where my expertise is much more than on mobile development. And for all the talk about logging, I mean, I I work in Ruby on Rails. It logs stuff automatically, right? Hmm. It logs database queries. It logs, you know, uh, inbound requests, outbound requests. The the rub is is that it's all sequential and it's all one log. And so, if you have four or five threads running at the same time, it can get mu- munged up. Usually, they put some kind of process ID or something on it so you can kind of untangle it, but logging is not the nirvana on the back end unless you are deliberate about it, right? Because it'll log everything. I've never done that. So I, and, and now being in the startup, I mean, I own the back end and I'm always thinking, why isn't there more logging in here? And, I, and I've never made that connection, never thought about that. This back end is having to handle who knows how many different simultaneous users and doing all that. Yep. I, I always used to wonder when on the app side of GM, I would have a problem and I'm going to the back end guys like, hey, can you tell me what happened in this case? Uh, okay, hold on. Let me get set up to debug it. And okay, now do it now. I'm like, why yep. can't I just, if you come to me and tell me there's a problem, I just tell you, send me the logs and I'll look at what time it happened and bam, everything's there. I never, it never clicked to me why they couldn't just simply do the same thing I was doing. And they always had to have me, you know, ready with my, okay, wait, 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 now. <laughs> and okay, yeah. Oh, I got it. That that yeah, I never got it. But what you're saying makes more sense now to me. Right. And so yeah, what you wind up doing is you'll either wind up using like a grep function while you watch the log or a grep function while you, you know, scroll through the log mm-hmm. to try and find what you're looking for. Or the other thing that I've seen is that a lot of the logs wind up getting pushed into something like Kibana. And so then you've got basically they're all put into a database, they're all searchable, blah, 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 blah. But the other thing you have to keep in mind is that, and I know that this is a concern on the front end, but it's not often as much of a concern because, you know, all all that stuff's localized to the phone, but the logs are also a vector of attack. And so you have to scrub out passwords, you have to scrub out user identifiable information and all of that stuff, because if it's on your server, you're liable for it. And so that's the other thing is if you know which user it is, that doesn't necessarily help you. Yeah. figure out which request corresponds with them. And so that's when you start looking for, okay, about what time did it happen? And, you know, this kind of thing. There are also tools, though, that will log errors, right? So if it raises an exception or raises an error on the back end, it'll track it. But yeah, it's not... If, if it's just some weird behavior, you're not going to get a report on it. And so then you have to go and try and figure out when it happened and where it happened and what they were doing and how that translates to what shows up in the log and things like that. And so. Yeah, it, it gets kind of tricky and kind of not fun. It makes more sense on the back end side that, that it's you know that that you can't do the same things with it that you can do on the mobile side. With mm-hmm. I, I have yet to ever see, and I've seen a bunch of code bases, any of them that do more than just the stock print something yep. out from the console here, usually so that in Xcode's debugger I can see it on the right hand bottom corner there and with the console log, that's about all people ever do with it. I'm always like, yeah, mm-hmm. folks, you, you're, you're missing out. Yep. You, you, your best debugging tool for what's going on in production you'll maybe ever have is logging your second best is analytics. Analytics yep. is just for user went to that screen, user clicked that button. Hey, this, this feature gets used by 67% of users. No, we have, a, we have this really hard to find bug. I can't imagine... That this, or maybe, yeah, I don't, I don't, this, this air condition will never get here. I'm not even going to really bother handling it because there's just no way we'll ever get there. But you know what? Let me throw in an analytics statement here for this specific error and then wait a few weeks and go check analytics and see if it actually happened. Oh, wow. It happened seven times in the last week. 
I never would have thought. The, the mm-hmm. things that you can use analytics and logging for on the when, the, when it's out there in production in someone's hands and you don't have control over it, it's not a tester who can bring their phone to you and you can you know examine their logs. Those are, those are tools that I think are vastly underutilized. Yeah, that is a common practice that I've seen is that when a bug is occurring, yeah, they'll put logging code into the deployed. And that may be the only change that they deploy is just better logging, but it's usually directed at a particular problem. And a lot of times it'll get stripped out once the problem is solved. Right. And and I've, you know, I've done the same thing, but for me, it's better because some of these things and, and where I'm at now, we've had some things that we only that we might see three times in a month or three months go by and we don't see it once. Mm-hmm. Okay, if you didn't put something in there until after someone reported it, now you got to wait for it to happen again. Yep. If you are in, and I know it's a lot of code and it's a lot of diligence. And one of the reasons I don't trust everyone to do it on um, the stuff that I worked on, every method had logs all over the place. If you if you just look for for logging statements on the code I was writing, they were everywhere. But I knew with a fair degree of certainty, someone had past tense <laughs> this problem yesterday send me the log and I almost guarantee you I'll at least be able to, to see what happened. Right. Not after the fact. I mean, like, oh, we've got this weird bug. Well, I guess we should throw some logging in there now to try to, ch- to try to check it. Now we got to do another push out to the app store to get this version out there. And hopefully then mm-hmm. that user will you know, use it and experiences the same thing again. No, no, do it ahead of time. Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of the logging is sufficient, right? For you to see what's going on, but not always. And if it's a really oh, tricky it's, thing, no. yeah, that's when you go in and you're, yeah, you're adding stuff in. But a lot of times you don't know that you need to log that stuff until you know you have a problem. It reminds me of the old days with print <laughs> F, step one, two or three lines of code later, print F, step two. <laughs> okay, mm-hmm. let me run this and see which step I got to. Uh, yep. Good old days of debugging. No, that's that's today. People do that in their JavaScript on the front end. Console.log, step one. Console.log, step two. I don't do front end stuff. So yeah, I know it is. But I, okay, I've occasionally seen it. I've occasionally written it in some mobile code myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because you can can instrument it in the browser. And so, but on the back end, yeah, you kind of have to just watch stuff flow by and go, oh, there's that line. And if you you use print statements, then you you can just, instead of setting breakpoints, just run. Yeah. I'll... I'll pull out the, the console output yep. from Xcode and pop it into a text mm-hmm. editor window, and then I'll see which step we got to. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yep. sometimes, admittedly. Yep. Awesome. So, is this talk going to be published anywhere, or is it just the lucky Spotify people that get it? I I don't know because I haven't read over the contract to see if they retain some kind of ownership to it, since they are paying for the talk. I've also thought. <laughs> and unfortunately, because I I was told about the deadline for getting the video recording finished and submitted like a week before that deadline. And so I was scrambling to get it done. And once when iMovie spit out the final product and I watched it, I realized that this wonderful Yeti mic that I'm using and, I, and that I used for it, when I did the live shots of me, I was upstairs and, and I have a very open air house that mm-hmm. there's a ton of railing over a half of the upstairs. It looks out over to an open back in. So there, there's no acoustics really. And, and I was crystal clear in the shots of me. When I did the, the, the shots of me talking over the, the slideshow, it was late at night. The family's asleep. So I went down to the dining room away from everyone in a very enclosed room and did those recordings. Mm-hmm. And I came to find out, oh, wow, the sound is significantly different and not <laughs> when I do these recordings down, these screencast recordings down here. So I have thought about the possibility, if if I retain the rights to the to the speech, I might just throw it out there and, and put it on YouTube and hey, it's, it's there. Even then, because of the slideshows also has like the, the, the theme of their of their conference on each slide, I might redo it all. Take the script, mm-hmm. redo the slideshow, just in keynote, my own slide backgrounds, and and put everything in and redo the screencast recording so the sound is is crisp by doing it in the same spot upstairs. 
and put it out there. I think one way or another, I think it's going to end up, in, unless I find out from them that, nope, this is our proprietary thing that we paid you for and it's ours now. I doubt that's the case, but barring that, it is going to make its way out there one way or another in the not so distant future. Hey folks, I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been working a lot on figuring out how to help people become the most valuable developers on their teams or becoming the top 5% of developers in the field. If you're looking to level up, figure out how to contribute more, get the career you want, get the career that you want that will support the lifestyle you want, then you should check out the Most Valuable Dev Summit. I've invited some of my friends across the community, people that you've heard of, people that have worked on systems that you use on a daily basis, people who have invented new ways of doing things over the years in programming, and I've asked them one question, and that question is, how do you become a top 5% developer? How do you become one in 20 of the best developers out there? And so we're going to go ahead and have that conversation with them in interviews on the Most Valuable Dev Summit. And you can find that at summit.mostvaluable.dev. Cool. Well, I'll keep an eye out and we'll uh, let people know about it. One last thing before we wrap up, and this is something that I need to do when I do this particular show is, do you want to just give people like the two-minute pitch for your series on clean coders? Yeah, I can I can do that. So the the thought behind the series was I'm not teaching Objective C, certainly not. <laughs> and I'm not with <laughs> this is meant for people who already have a decent understanding of how to get controls, images, content on a screen, who understand screen coordinates, who understand or have spent some time learning Swift or Objective C. Maybe they're coming from Android. Maybe they're coming from web development, but they get the basic concepts. They just need to understand how to do it on iOS. So that right. was like a prerequisite for the series. You've already got some general understanding of working with stuff on a screen. Mm -hmm. And beyond that, it becomes step by step. All right, first, you need to know how to do Hello World. All right, let's get you up and running there. Second, you need to know, and like that's episode one, mostly in explaining, explain the life cycle of iOS applications and in different states and, and stuff you have to be aware of and consider there, but just getting the basic app up and running. Second episode is, okay, now you need to, you know, to do anything real, you need to, to understand control. You need to understand table views. You need to understand right. buttons. You need to understand sliders, all this stuff. So here's a bunch of controls and how they work and how you work with them. Now you can do a little more complex of an application. And then it went to, if I remember the order correctly, well, uh, we've just been doing basic stuff with the development environment, but now you really need to learn your tool a little better. So let's spend an entire episode showing you all the stuff that Xcode does, not all, the, the primary stuff that Xcode does, what it, all these different icons on the screen mean, how you mm -hmm. do debugging, you know, how, how to get the most out of at least rudimentary understanding of the development environment. And then from there, we go into talking about like infrastructure. And that's where I bring up the fact that I wrote this infrastructure library and, and networking. It's a big focus of that episode. And, and the fact that I don't know what the percentage is, but a lot of applicate apps out there now talk to some kind of backend. So you need to know how to talk to the backend. Yes, you can get a third-party library if you want to. My recommendation is you understand how to do it yourself. Here's how that works. Right. And then the last episode is, all right, you've gotten everything to this point to understand how to develop a basic app in iOS that talks to a backend. There's a lot of apps out there that don't do any more than that. The next step for you is let's do a little more advanced UI. Let's, let's compose some controls the, mm -hmm. out of existing pieces that, that do a little more, you know, let's, Let's have screens that have fade in, fade out backgrounds. That just some some other more advanced, not totally advanced, but more advanced things you can do with UI and controls. And and because the name of the series is you know, iOS Development 101, it was like this is this is your hundred level iOS development course. By the time you finish with this, you should know how to write a basic application and maybe do a little cool, a few cool visual tricks with it that talks to a backend, takes user input and, and does everything that's, that's needed there. And that covers a lot, uh, especially if you're being 
you know, if you're a web developer who your company's like, hey, we need this app, but it's really going to be used by internal people. It doesn't have to be pretty. It doesn't have to be great. Just needs mm-hmm. to get it done within the enterprise. This will teach you how to be that, how to transition from that being that web developer to being that iOS developer who gets that quick and dirty app out that does what they need. If we ever did a 200 level, you know, course, then we would go into some more advanced concepts and things that that nicer apps on the app store do. But we'll see if that ever happens. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. Well, we'll put a link in the show notes to your course. And hopefully real soon, we'll see that uh, talk out there because I'm looking forward to it. And yeah, until then, folks, we're going to wrap up here. Uh, Max out, everybody. Have a good one. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit dot com to learn more.